You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello again, everyone. This is Doug Thorpe, and you're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Uh, We're the show where we try to help you as a business leader or owner figure out ways to solve problems around you and uh, help elevate and inspire your team to take it to the next level, whatever that may be. So whether you're small business or large corporate, doesn't matter. Leadership is leadership, and we love talking about it. Today, I've asked my guest to join us. Uh, His name is Jay Jamrog, and Jay is a longtime futurist. When we were in the green room, Jay was sharing with me that uh, for his whole career of being a futurist, it's it's hard to be that right now with so many things that are going on in the world. And I will certainly let you elaborate on that, Jay, as we get going. But first, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. So tell us a little bit, let's go backstory quickly. Uh, what does it mean to be a futurist? Yeah. And uh, tell everybody how long you've been doing that. Yeah, so I, I sort of stumbled into it in grad school when I started my first business. And it was all around um, strategic workforce planning. My mentor was George Odeon, who was the MBO, father of MBO, along with Peter Drucker. Um, and so he helped me start my first company. It was a not-for-profit academic-based think tank looking at the future. We called it environmental scanning. So you look at the internal environment, the external environment, and you do some rigorous scanning around what are the trends, what are the counter trends, what's driving those trends, what are the implications for companies, and what are some of the strategies out there. And we used to build scenarios like Royal Dutch Shell does. And uh, we'd have about, we we write thousands of scenarios, but you know we'd have four for every issue looking at the future. Um, and you mentioned, Doug, that today is probably the worst time in my career about looking into the future because, frankly, there are so many short-term unresolved issues. We don't know how they're going to turn out that it makes it very hard to look five, ten years out uh, and be a futurist. So uh, hopefully I won't be put on the carpet to predict five years out, but I'll be glad to try. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh I started uh back then environmental scanning back that was back in 1984. Um moved the company uh down to Florida in 1986. We were at the University of Massachusetts, moved it to Florida because George had a chair position offered him in Florida at a university. So I followed him down. Frankly, it was interesting story. So we had a good home at the University of Massachusetts. Um, it was a great school, great place. It's my backyard where I grew up. Um, and Florida didn't offer anything equivalent to the University of Massachusetts, close to where we were. And so he invited me down one February when the snow was doing this horizontal thing in Massachusetts, put me up at the beach at a beautiful hotel called Don Cesar. Uh, in St. Petersburg, Florida, and had me meet with the president of the college. I didn't have to meet the president of the college. Uh, it was <laughs> five white sugar beaches, beautiful hotel, beautiful place to live, and uh, I, I was hooked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I moved it there. I eventually um, uh, took it off campus in 2001. 
we were doing some very good research around organizational effectiveness and what is the current, uh, you know, uh, key performance indicators that looked at the people part of the organization that could predict performance in the future. Um, and we were finding some really cool stuff. Um, and so I took it off campus looking for funding. The first thing I heard was, uh, not you, Jay. You have a good company, you have a good model, but they're not gonna invest in you. In fact, one investor said, I don't know. Um, and I said, why? And he said, they want somebody, if they're gonna give $10 million to you, they want somebody who's gonna run the company with a track record of success. And frankly, you're holding on by a shoestring. It was a mom and pop academic based thing. And he was right. Uh, I hated running the company. I really did. I love research, but I hated running the company. So I met Kevin Oakes uh, in Toronto. Uh, come to find out we were both grew up in the same neighborhood in Western Massachusetts. He grew up in South Deerfield. I grew up in Turner's Falls and worked on the same pickle farm, the same tobacco farm. I'm older than he is, but he has a track record. He uh, founded uh, Click to Learn, merged with Docent. That became Sum Total Systems. So he has a great track record. And so we partnered to form I4CP. The other company was called HRI, the Human Resource Institute. And we folded that into I4CP. <clears throat> Kevin became CEO, of course. I said, thank you, Jesus. And he's grown the company tremendously. We've been on the Inc.'s uh, private company fastest growing list seven times. Uh, we're also listed in the top 20 of uh, remote co best companies to work for for remote work. So it's he's a great CEO. We have a great culture, and we're growing extremely fast. So let's let's talk about the company itself and and what are you doing for other companies? Are you still yeah. in that workforce? Uh, optimization space and sure we are we are our mission is to uh, discover and advance the next practices in human capital so yes there's best practices out there but we want to help our members think about the future and creating a best practice uh, and a next practice that will give them a competitive advantage so we're a member-driven research organization we do both qualitative and quantitative research so we have uh, a great research arm. We do very rigorous research, Doug. We look at uh, what is it that's going to drive market performance. And we define market performance so that companies over the last five years with customer satisfaction, revenue growth, profitability, and customer and, um, and profitability. Those four things become a multivariate dependent variable in every one of our studies. The top quartile in all four of those categories, we call them high-performing organizations. And we compare them to the bottom quartile. But we also do correlations and regression analysis to really see how much of the variance in market performance this particular human capital practice can deliver to the company. Um, so we probably do more research than any other organization in the human capital space in the world. Um, we do hundreds of studies, big studies, little studies, and then most of it is driven by our members. And so we're a member-driven organization. We have a lot of peer networks like CHRO boards, CDO boards, chief learning and talent officer boards, and most of these are the, some of the bigger companies in the United States and the world. 
Well, the thought that's going through my mind right now is I've had several guests on my show and we've talked about the changes in the workforce thinking right now, largely precipitated by COVID and the whole remote work, yep. stay home for large percentages of the workforce. Obviously not all could, there were, there were jobs that still needed boots on the ground and, yep. uh, you know, that kind of stayed the same in a fashion. However, <clears throat> you know, depending on who you talk to, there's a pretty widespread consensus that the whole experience has caused a seismic shift in the way employees are willing to show up for work. And um, companies to this day are still struggling. Yeah, to, you think I have pants on? To get it right. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Doug. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm oh, but case in point. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm digressing here, but I'm thinking, <laughs> sorry, about, I'm thinking about that. I interrupted uh, your train of thought. <laughs> no, 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 that's good. Uh, I'm thinking about that classic video that was on screen. Guy was sitting for a job interview with the boss and the boss yep. had a coat and tie on. The candidate, something happened with one of his kids. He jumped up and he had gym shorts on under <laughs> his shirt and then... <laughs> Without saying a word or missing a beat, the boss got up and he too had gym shorts on and he went and got a cup of coffee and came back. It was kind of that subtle, you're okay, dude, don't worry about it. Don't be yeah, embarrassed, yeah. you know. And what, you know, I, in, in my frame of reference as, as kind of a leadership coach, I thought to myself, what an amazing leader that he had the sensitivity to open his kimono and 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 share that you yeah. know he's he's real too okay above the waist we're all trying to be corporate and really cool here but you know below the waist we're just two guys and talking so i thought man that's a boss you want to work for yeah we found more when we when covid hit we had um almost daily meetings with our members and Zoom calls around how this works, how can it work, and what's needed. And we found that a lot of the good leaders became better. The bad ones were, were you know, you could see it. They just did not handle this whole remote thing. Right. And a lot of the ones that were in between absolutely got better also. What they found was, Leaders now were looking into your home. You weren't just in a cubicle. And they saw people, how they live, their families, their interruptions became normal. The cat walking across a keyboard became normal. Um, kids interrupting became normal. And managers who were empathetic and compassionate knew that and understood it and could deal with it. Those who were still the old school, command and control, do as I say, not as I do, kind of manager, they were found out. And I had one CHRO on a call, um, and I can't remember her name, um, but she said, you know, one of the things that has surfaced for me is I don't need a leadership assessment tool anymore. I can actually see who's the good leaders. And I you don't have to have an assessment tool. They they are coming to the fore, and we know who they are. Wow, that's an interesting take. Yeah. 
Well, I, I agree with you totally. In fact, I've even gone on record. I've written an article about the idea that uh, the old philosophy of command and control needs to be fundamentally abolished, except I do allow for certain caveats. And specifically the story I tell, if I've got to go in for heart surgery, which I don't, thank God, but um, if I did, I want my surgeon to be in total command and control of that OR, <laughs> you know, and, and that's okay. Yeah, right. But when, but you, in when, a, you're, when you're a policeman in the street, you want command and control. Right. You right. want safety. But in a more normalized work world, uh, even some people have challenged me on that. They said, well, what about something like the trades? What, what about, you know, a, a plumbing company or an electrical company? And, and I'm going, yeah, you don't need command and control for that. You, yeah. you, you, you can organize and inspire a workforce to do that work quite well if you adopt a, a more humanistic approach to it or human centric is probably the better word, I think. So we just did a re study on productivity and we looked because everybody's complaining about, you know, with remote work or hybrid work, or whatever you want to call it, that productivity is hurting. And yes, productivity has gone down, but probably not for the reason most companies think. So when we looked at leadership, what we saw was that the most effective leadership still is one with accountability and empathy. So you don't go full on handholding, uh, do anything you want out there. You have to have accountability. We started a hybrid work world in 1986, primarily because I couldn't afford to hire the people that I needed. Uh, so I had to give them the freedom to do the work whenever they wanted. So when they work, how they work, when they work was not a problem for me. It was getting the work done on time. So Doug, if you were one of my researchers and we had a new project that you were going to be in charge of, and we both, we, I thought it was going to be about four months to finish it. You said three. And so we agreed on three and a half. Okay. And we would have check-ins along the way because you were a remote worker. If you could do the work in two days, Doug, I don't give a crap. Okay. So long as it's right. done, quality and quantity is done on time, you can spend the rest of the time on the beach for all I care. Now right. I have had people in the past abuse that, and we've had to have accountability around that. Right. Uh, but for the most part, you hire smart people. If you're a plumbing shop, you hire licensed plumbers who are accredited, who got their uh, certificates. They don't need somebody breathing down their neck every day. Right. Their performance will will show what they do, right? And right. how how quickly and how effectively and efficiently they do it. And it's one thing, just staying with that example. It's one thing to create a KPI that says we want an average on-site turn time of two hours or two and a half hours or something like that. And, and you can set a standard back to the accountability point. You can set the standard and challenge your guys to be able to do that. And, and, but you then I think turn around in fairness, you incentivize them. If you crush the heck out of that target and that we're getting positive customer response satisfaction levels, you know, then I'm going to give you a bonus. Yeah, you that... know, the one thing people don't realize is that, first of all, they have to have the training to do the job at optimal level. 
right. a lot of times we set goals and people don't have the ability to reach those goals because we haven't given them the training and the skills to do it. You hire people with a certain amount of skills and then you have to develop them even further. So, you know, a lot of, you know, for hourly employees, regular employees, low level employees get very little training. And, you know, you're supposed to learn it on the job. Um, so a lot of times setting goals in, like I said, George Odeon was my mentor. It was management by objectives. And pretty much goal setting is the key for managers. You have to know how to set goals. So I have to know more about you, Doug. What are your skills? What are your capabilities? How well have you done in the past? How much can I stretch you? How much do I need to develop you? There are different things to go into setting the accountability around Doug so that he can reach it and then we can stretch it and go exceed it and get that bonus. So I'm trying to think how to word my next question. Where I'd like to go is is the idea. You mentioned doing studies on employee performance and yep. optimized performance. It, is it better to set individual type KPIs or small team KPIs? Yeah, that's that. That is the always the problem we've had for years, and we're going to be doing a study at the end of this year on teams, because teams and individuals um, have always been. It's easy to do individuals. I can set goals with you on your individual job, etc. But more and more in organizations, it's becoming group work. Now you can call it teams if you want. I don't. So it's project work. We, some of the better companies today are developing skill databases so that they can do an internal talent marketplace. Just like you have an external, external talent marketplace, you can create an internal talent marketplace once you know the skills that you have available to you. Now, 70, over 70% of companies say they don't know the skills that they have. And over 70% say, I don't know what skills I'm going to need in the future. So there's a big gap there. But once you develop a skill database, now you can overlay that with a platform that creates a, a, an AI in, internal talent marketplace where, Doug, you could be, I could be your supervisor, but half the work you do, I never see because you're working on other projects. So, yeah, it's it's a difficult thing to, um, you know, uh, handle if you're a boss, um, but it's not impossible. It just means doing more of the leadership work than you didn't have to do before. You used to rely on HR to do everything. You can't anymore. You have to be the HR professional as a leader. So let me ask you this. There's been a lot of chatter, and and, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, but there's, you know, in, in the business world, certain keywords bubble up periodically, and they get to the top of everybody's mind, and, and there's a lot of study, and there's consultants and gurus that pop up teaching it and everything so specifically the 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 term psychological safety or building trust at work those are on the short list now of things that people are popularly talking about what are, what are some of your studies about those things or, or how do they show up in in your study yeah we do a lot of stuff around this so uh, we have a whole well-being exchange, which which meets every month of companies that are interested in the well-being, the psychological and physical safety of their employees. So we call it psychological and physical uh, safety, uh, creating a safe work environment. 
uh, where your boss is not an SOB, uh, where your employees, your teammates don't try to stab you in the back. So mm-hmm. it's collaborative. It's, uh, it's empathetic. It's compassionate. But it's also driven. So culture becomes the key word. And building a culture of trust and building a culture where people are driven to, I I call it three different values of a good culture. They focus on the people, the psychological and physical safety of the people. They focus on the environment, the planet. So it's people, planet, and profits. So the planet means you're not going to solve all the world problems around the planet and everything like that, but you can do stuff in your local community. Like we do a lot of stuff around Best Buddies, which is an IDD group, and we do a lot of group stuff with them. That's our little contribution. We're just a little company, but everybody can do a little bit. And then it's about profits. So you have a culture that uh, creates trust with psychological and physical safety. I trust that you're gonna look after me that way, my well-being. You also have an environment that has a higher purpose than just making money. So it's to help the community, it's help the country, it's whatever it is. Uh, And then you have a a company that's focused on making profits because if you don't make profits, you can't do the other two. And so knowing that upfront and trusting that's where the company is gonna come from uh, means a whole bunch. So culture, we've done tons of stuff on culture. We wrote a book called Culture Renovation, which is uh, it's in its fifth fifth printing now. Um, that's a bestseller. And it, you know, it lays out how to plan, build, and maintain a healthy culture. We call it culture renovation. Not culture change, not culture transformation. None of the successes that we studied call it change or transformation. Mm. It was more about a renovation. Renovation. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking particularly in the realm, there's a lot going on right now in the small business world, depending on who you talk to, estimates are six to seven trillion dollars of wealth that have been built by baby boomers who now want to cash out. Yep. They're, they're ready to exit whatever they've created. And 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 there's a conundrum there. They they want to know the legacy passes on somehow they're, because they're proud of what they did and they should be. Um, but at the same time, it's a wonderful opportunity for younger people rather than go through the pains of startup and, and bootstrap. You can, you can accumulate the funding to go buy one of those businesses, take it in a run rate it already is, but inevitably, in those transactions, there is a need for that cultural renovation that's yeah. that's going on because maybe the creator, founder, uh, maybe he was a command and control guy to work for. Yes, he built a profitable business, but it wasn't necessarily a happy place to work for long. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, they've got a footprint. Yes, they've got a customer base. And yes, they've got some survivors on the payroll, but uh, now a, a, a new younger owner comes in and says, I want to take this to yet another level. And they got to do some repair work on the culture they've got. Yeah. So, you know, if a person has a small business, I would, that's ready to retire and ready to pass it on and, and make sure his legacy is still there. I would... Um, argue with you that probably somewhere in the past they had a good culture 
Now, maybe it has gone downhill after that, um, but somehow in the beginning, they probably had a good culture. So what renovation means is you take that, okay, what was in the past and you renovate it. It's like a, you renovate a kitchen, okay? You can change all the countertops, change all the appliances, everything, but it's still a kitchen. It has a basic value. So what is the basic value that the company was built on originally? Now renovate that, take it, move it and make it go forward. There's a good book put out by Satya Nadelli, who's the CEO of Microsoft called Hit Refresh. When he became the CEO, that's the book he wrote. And if you wanna see something that really happened extraordinarily well was the culture renovation at Microsoft. He took way in the past, because he was a Microsoft alum. He knew what it was like to work for Bill Gates in the beginning and how it had changed with Bomber and the rest of them. Not that Bomber was a bad person, but he had different focus than the original Microsoft. So he wanted to take it back to the original Microsoft and hit refresh and become a... Um, a learn-it-all organization, not a know-it-all organization. Uh, so yeah, you can do it. And when the new person comes in, their primary goal, if they're looking to build it in the future is do a little history on the company. How did it start? What was the culture when it started? Talk to some of the old timers, uh, if they're still there. Why did they come there and why did they stay? Uh, why did people leave? Do some exit interviews to find out why they left. And then do your do your work, and it's you can read the culture renovation book, and it'll give you eighteen steps to do it. I love how that. Plan, how to plan, build, and maintain. <laughs> and I really like that idea, and I, I think that is so applicable, and and definitely the opportunity that does exist. And and I do agree with you. Now that I think about it inevitably, for the company to grow to a certain level, and you know, what makes these particular businesses appealing for buyers is that they've got a sustainable cash flow, they've got a history, they've got a track record, they may be up in the multi-million dollar EBITDA range, but yet still owned by one guy or, yeah. or lady. Yeah. And um, so there's there's definitely juice there, you know, it, it's it's a matter of capturing that lightning in a new bottle and, and, and moving forward with it. And yeah. um, so culture definitely is a is a, a big part of that. And when you talk about leadership and whether leaders succeed or fail, a lot of times it's not on the development they had. It's in the culture they live in. So if you can go to the best classes in the world, there's nothing wrong with Harvard, Michigan, the rest of these executive education programs. The problem is, is they learn all kinds of neat stuff at these executive ed programs and they come back to a culture that doesn't reward or recognize that kind of stuff. They're still based in the old way and they'll revert back to the old way because the environment will tell them what to do and not do. And if the environment hasn't changed, all the development of the world doesn't mean anything. I, a number of years ago, I worked on a pretty large scale executive coaching assignment that had a number there. I think it was something like 35 coaches were involved and hundreds and hundreds of upper managers. 
the CEO had embarked on a mission to change culture. And he said, you know, we're a hundred year old company, but our culture is not conducive to attracting and retaining the modern workforce. We need to make a change. And he had done a lot of studies and there was a lot of background that came together. I don't know who he got input from, from the outside, but it was good. The design of where they wanted to go, I think was really good. And speaking totally as a leadership development guy, I agreed with the the vision they had mapped out, but I immediately cautioned them. I said, the problem is you, you've defined a leadership framework here, but we have a fundamental failure to communicate. What do these words mean to people? You, yeah. you, you've got to go dig into the layers of the organization and have a discussion about the, the personal buy-in for what those words really mean as leaders. Yeah. And well, Go, Go ahead. ahead. No, finish. Well, what I was going to say was, so we did all that work, and that's a lot of what the coaches were doing, and we really came out on the other side with a pretty good uh, launch pad of, of making this change begin to happen. And a quick example of one of the values that they wanted to adjust, they had a legacy of looking at a new opportunity in the market and doing research and analysis to get to a so-called 100% certainty answer on which way they wanted to go. Well, guess what? 80% of that content could happen instantly, but the extra 20% to get you to 100 could have taken months to explore, and the opportunity was gone. Right. <laughs> so so they, had, they, were, they knew they were missing opportunities. But nonetheless, people had been evaluated on the ability to come up with that 100% certainty. So now they said, our new culture, we're going to accept 70 or 80 as good. If, if it's green light at 70, green light at 80, we're going to go. We're going to yep. do it. If we yep. lose money, no harm, no foul. We're, we'll be okay. So for 364 days, they did that. And on 365, when they did evaluations, they went back to the old legacy system, which was a force place ranking and you got tagged if, if you were on a 10-person team, all 10 had to be ranked. Somebody was at the top of the heap. Somebody was slot number 10. And why? They used the, sadly, some managers used the 70-80% as the criteria for why they put somebody at, at number 10 on the list, not number one. And what did that do to 364 days of experience? Flush down the toilet. Wow. On 366, they had to start over with their culture change. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's a good story, but it's a sad story because oh, yeah. it yeah. didn't have to be that way. Well, they, they did. That was one element of their environment and their culture they had not focused on. And they did quickly move to abolish that and, and revamp the whole rating process to be able to more accurately reflect good and acceptable performance in the 70, 80% certainty range. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's interesting that, you know, taking that risk and only letting it go for a year, culture is something and trust goes along with this. It's very hard to build. Right. It's very easy to break. So when you look at, it sounds like this company did not have everybody on board. 
And when the senior leadership team and the CEO has one message, one playbook, the rest of the people have to follow along and have to be measured and rewarded on how well they're following along. If not, leave. It's not a culture that you want to be in. That's fine. I'll help you leave. Right. The CEO and executive team and any culture renovation has to be on the same page. Right. And has to go forward that way. And every communication has to be around that. The communication is key. If you look at a company, the one, let me, a quick story. This culture study, I was in charge of the research. Uh, we got about 8,000 companies to respond to our study, uh, which was quite a bit. So we had a big database, which made me very happy. But I went into the study very cynical. I love culture. I love looking at culture. I love looking at uh, societies and their cultures. And it's just something I love. One thing I know, though, is in a culture in a large organization, even a small one, the, there are many tribes within cultures that have their own culture. HR has a different culture than engineering or sales. It's a given. They have their own language and secret handshakes. The culture at the top is not the culture at the bottom. This, in, in between, it's different. The culture in the Boston office is not the same as the culture in the LA office or the mm -hmm. Tokyo office or the Paris office. They're different. So what we saw with the companies that were successful, out of those 8,000 companies, only about 15% said they had been successful with the culture. So it was only 15%. But what I saw with the data, there were certain things every one of those 15% did, and it was consistent across the, across the thing. Um, they very definitely had – they didn't try to change all the subcultures, all the tribes within it. What they wanted to do is all those subcultures and all those tribes believe in a few things that we want to accomplish in this company. Uh, and it's, you can call them values, you can call them purpose, you can call them whatever you want, but there's certain things that we're going to abide by with the whole company. And we're going to assess everybody that way. The whole senior executive team has to be on board. Everybody has to message it and it has to go over and over and over again. All the HR practices, including leadership development, have to be aligned. They have to sing the same message. And if you're not singing that same message, the old stuff comes back. And let's go back to the old way, the good old days. I mean, this isn't working. Um, yeah, so you, everybody's got to be on board. If you're not on board, find another job. Right. And that's okay. Right. And the larger the company, the more complex it gets because Absolutely. inevitably compensation structures influence a lot of that. And, and try as you might to say it shouldn't or doesn't, it does. And if you're, if, if I, I can think of companies where division heads, you know, a huge part of their year in compensation is a, is a bonus based on performance of that division. So it becomes a, a, a knife fight for resources and opportunities and even market shared to, and you're competing with the guy in the division right next door. It's like, no, you're competing with the world. You don't want to compete with your, <laughs> your peer in the, in the company. The comp, plan, the comp plan makes it so. Well, a lot of things in HR uh, makes it so. Look at high perform, high potentials. 
that's a big competition pin for that one job that everybody's looking for. And it's a, it's a recipe for disappointment. So I once did a survey and asked people, do you call your high potentials something other than hypos? And two people wrote back, yeah, we call them popos, passed <laughs> over and pissed off. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a remarkable thing that we want collaboration. We want people to work together. We want innovation. We want creativity. We want people to um, collaborate. But we build in systems where they fight each other over bonuses, over incentives, over promotions. Um, right. You know, who gets to do what? What projects do you want to work on? Do you, do, are you assigned to a losing division? Um, or are you assigned to a winning division? It's a whole political game that's played. It's, I was in academia, so it's not like politics in academia, but it, it is a political game in a lot of ways too. So you have to build a culture where people want to work together. Right. I think we've done a good job here in our company, and I know many companies that are doing a very good job at this. And you don't have to have the acrimony, the fighting, the backstabbing. It's not necessary. Right. Right. Well, it, it is a big challenge. Um, well, let me ask you this, as we kind of get near the end of our time together, I, yeah. I'll, I'll give you, Grace, you, you know, long-term forecasts are a little bit out the window with the immediate challenges of the world. But what are some of the more prevalent predictions that you're sharing with client companies right now about workforce future? Yeah. Yeah, the future of work, workplace and workforce. I talk a lot about this. Um, one is culture is actually going to become more important. And we've seen it over and over again that companies with a toxic culture lose people, lose profits, et cetera. And too many companies are toxic or somewhat toxic. I couldn't say fully toxic, but toxicity um is accountable for about 10 times, 10.4 times more, more influence on turnover than compensation is. So having a toxic culture is killing companies, especially when you have an environment where the labor force has been inverted. For decades, there's always been more and more people unemployed than there were jobs available even though we were growing. Now we have the lowest unemployment we've had in decades, the fastest job growth we've had in decades. So there are more job openings than there are unemployed. And even the unemployed probably don't have the skills. So we've got a thing where the employees have the upper hand in the labor market today. Look at what unions are doing. So they finally feel they have some power. Employees have power too, over when I work, how I work, and where I work. Now, everybody's a little bit different. So this hybrid kind of environment, some people want to come to work every day. Mm -hmm. Most of these are young people. They're single. They want to socialize. We are human beings. We are social animals. We do like we're, yeah, we're tribal by nature. Correct. There's some people like me. Uh, I have never gone to an office and I have no inkling whatsoever going to the office in the future. I got to say, uh, I've never had a boss. And I don't want to have a boss in the future. But that's me. And everybody's a little different. 
Um, so we're going to be struggling with this as CEOs are losing money on their rented space that they're paying for that nobody comes into. The Chamber of Commerce is beating on companies to have them come back into the city and come back into the towns because the small businesses are hurting because the employees aren't going out to lunch and they're not going out after work together because uh, there's fewer of them left. So there's a lot of pressure on companies to bring people back to work. Making excuses like productivity, innovation, and culture to do this is stupid because it doesn't it doesn't show in any of the data. What this does show is knowing Doug. I gotta know you. Are you twenty five year old and single who wants to socialize? Great, come to work. If you're an old person like Jay who doesn't want to, fine, stay at home. So long as you're getting your work done, I don't care. But there are times when people need to meet up as a team or as a project, kicking off a project, celebrating the end of it, sometimes meeting during it. These are reasons why that people understand. Most managers and CEOs are not giving them the reason why that they can understand. Um, so, you know, that will be something that we're going to be dealing with. Um, of course, there's the whole external environment, the political, the social upheaval that we're seeing. That's going to stay there. I don't know how that's going to end. The other thing for corporations is that we're, we're seeing a trend towards not competencies or capabilities, but skills of deconstructing the work down to the basic skills that are going to be needed. What will... Um, machine learning and AI and generative AI, what, what roles will they play in the work that has to be done? The World Economic Forum said that um, about half the labor force is going to have to be upskilled and reskilled because of technology. Most companies are terrible at upskilling and reskilling. Only about 12% say they do it well. Um, so skills are going to be a big thing. Deconstructing work, knowing what skills have to be done rather than degrees or competencies or certificates of accomplishment. It's the skills you have that you're going to apply now. And what's nice about the artificial intelligence with the skilled databases and internal talent marketplace is I can search for on um, the skill database for certain skills I need for a project. Okay, so I'm going to put together a project team and it's going to be global, it's going to be multifaceted, etc. And I can put the skills out there and AI will look at, well, Doug has this, this and this skill. And we have seen that when people have this, this and this skill, they also have this skill, even though Doug hasn't listed it. Okay, so you could be uh, have a development assignment with this project and the AI will actually make it happen so you can have a development assignment. So this whole thing of Instead of looking for scarcity, complaining about a scarcity of talent out there, we have to change the mindset to sources of skills. And there's, you know, a talent ecosystem model that we put out that has about, you know, 15 different ways to look for different skills, not only internally, but externally. Crowdsourcing is something that can be used a lot. So right. there's a whole different way of looking at the labor force when you're looking at skills and how you can upskill and reskill. So that's going to continue. I think it's a huge issue, along with the flexibility issue, is going to be key. So those are just a couple of things I see.
I'm working with a company right now that has demonstrated to me one of the most advanced attitudes about workforce and building a culture. Uh, a huge part of the work team is essentially contract 1099 type. It, it's more like sort of that crowdsourcing labor thing. But but it is the idea they've gone to market to look for very specific skills that they've identified that they want to bring into the mix of what they want to do. And the the interesting thing is, um, on the one hand, from a pure legal standpoint, because the majority of the people are 1099, you know, by at least by U.S. law, you can't dictate hours, you can't dictate you know, protocols, you can set deadlines. You can say, I need that, like you were speaking of earlier, you can set a deadline. I need this delivered by Friday. Okay. Well, as a 1099, I get to pick when I want to do that work. And as long as I hit that deadline, but anyway, they've, they've, they've done a whole lot of things culturally that, that I find just fascinating. Of course, I've always professed and others have used this phrase. I think I'm a millennial stuck in a boomer body, but uh, <laughs> uh, so this kind of stuff just really gets me going. And, and I mean, people show up on our zoom call, everything's virtual and people show up on our, our teams calls and zoom calls, you know, in all manner of garb and hair and some look like they just got out of bed. Some just got out of the shower, but you know, some just came judges. home from the bar. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to elaborate, but, <laughs> but yes. And, uh, and, and it, I find it wildly refreshing to be honest. I mean, you know, uh, what I found, Doug, though, early on, because we started doing this in 1986, and I'm a boomer in a boomer body. So I did it in 1986, not because I was so forward-looking, but because I couldn't afford to do anything else. What I found, though, leadership uh, has to change. Much more communication. Uh, oftentimes, we also had offices, too. So if you want to come to an office, you can come to the office. We had an office, and, you know, about, half, you know, half, 25% to a half, they would like to come to the office once in a while. Just sometimes it was just to get out of the house and then to socialize. But I found that trust becomes huge because people in the office do not trust you, Doug, because you're working at home. You're not working. You're watching Oprah or whatever soapbox opera you like. Right, right. The people in the, at home do not trust the people in the office because they have the boss's ear every single day. And they're getting their two cents worth in and you're being plagued. Plagued means being not being asked their, your opinion. So this whole thing of communication around goals and who has what goal and how well they're doing and look at the work they're doing this all has to be communicated over and over and over again because the human nature is not to trust. You have to build that trust. And sometimes it takes somebody who's not performing to be let go humanely and would care, but you let them go and you let everybody know this person was not meeting their goals, was not meeting what they were trying to do. And we had set goals over and over and over again, and they don't meet the goals. So, yeah, it's it's a lot of communication. Leadership becomes key. I agree totally. And I, I love this company you're working with, by the way. I, I think it's cool. 
Well, and, and, and they are. The, the vision of where they want to go and what they want to accomplish is crystal clear for everybody. I mean, you, you, don't, have to be, you don't have to be part of the team long to understand and, and choose to buy in. And as you were describing your situation, the one thought I had, though, is somewhere in the blend of that, there's a spectrum of personalities that are more conducive for certain situations than others. Right. And and on the spectrum of personality, there are people that are naturally suspicious, untrusting, doubtful, fearful, etc. And I could see, and this is a generalized statement, but I could see that personality wouldn't fit into a culture like the one I described. No, and it wouldn't fit into my culture either. Um, so, you know, it's a culture of trust. And if you don't trust people through your work around, you usually don't fit into a healthy culture. Right. So, I mean, we've seen it over and over again with our studies. A healthy culture uh, has a lot of trust, a lot of collaboration, a lot of communication. Um, it's just very different from a toxic culture. Toxic cultures are command and control. They lack trust. Um, they don't, you know, I, I, I don't understand some of these CEOs. Well, I do understand because they're under a crunch from their board and the Chamber of Commerce of requiring everybody to come back to the office right away. I understand where they're coming from a business point of view, but from the human point of view, that's not going to work. Right. Well, and, and back to your point of all the travails in the world today, I, I know of one company based in Atlanta that um, they sent everybody home during the pandemic. And then when everything lifted and felt safe, they, they dictated everybody come back. But they overlooked the fact that in downtown Atlanta during that period, the daytime crime had gone through the roof. So incidents of mugging and being accosted and all that had, had skyrocketed and employees said, I'm not parking my car in the garage. I can't even make it to the front door without a high risk of being attacked, literally yeah. attacked. Yeah. So they said, I'll come back to work, but how are you going to get me in the building yeah. safely? Safely, you're gonna have guards, and yeah. and you know the they had to scratch their head and say hmm, we we don't have a good plan for that. Okay, time out. We're not gonna do that. Suspend that rule. We'll keep working remotely. Come come if you can and if you feel safe. But big mistake know. changing their rule, changing their rule all the time. That sends a lack of trust to everybody because the rumor mill will create the worst case scenario of why the CEO changed the rule. Right. You right, shouldn't right. have made the rule in the first place. But the basic thing that we put in our book, A Culture Renovation, is have a listening strategy today. Listen to your people. They'll tell you. Okay. So a listening strategy, like at Microsoft, they have a daily pulse survey. It goes out to their employees and they get the mood of their employees. Amazon does the same thing. I mean, there are a lot of companies that do this now where daily pulse surveys. If not, companies have weekly or monthly kinds of things where they're listening. They have focus groups. Some companies do an organizational network analysis where they find out who are the influencers in the company, and they'll form a culture cabinet with the influencers uh, because the influencers can be good and they can be bad. If they're against you, they can influence a lot. So it, there's a lot of things around this listening strategy. One um, aerospace company that works with us had about a 40%, 40, they're in Seattle and California. And so 
their high tech people are in demand. They get turnovers high in all those areas. And they had about a 48% turnover rate of their engineers. They followed, started having a comprehensive listening strategy, which had you know maybe 15 different strategies you know, all rolled up into the listening strategy. They started listening and it's a, the, the trick is it's sensing to insight to action. You sense what's happening. Um, you get some insights or you had to take action quickly. So they saw what was happening. They had a listening strategy and they cut it from 48% to 10% in a year. Wow. So by listening Amazing. to people and reacting to them when they could. Yeah. Well, Jay, our, our time's about up. This has been great. I feel like we're probably going to have to do a second edition of this and continue no the problem. discussion. This has been yeah. awesome. So you mentioned the book on, on the, the culture strategies. Tell, tell folks how to get a hold of that and any other way to get a hold of you. Yeah, sure. So my email address is jjay.jamrog at i4cp.com, the letter I and the number four, cp.com. Uh, you can send me an email. Uh, I'll I'll respond when I can, but I, I'll be glad to talk more to anybody about this. If anybody got an opinion or where things are going or what's happening out there, I love to hear about it. You know, they don't have to agree with me. I just love to hear where our people's opinions are. The book is called Cultural Renovation. It's on Amazon. Um, and the author is my co-founder, Kevin Oakes. Uh, not only is he a good CEO, he pisses me off because he's also a good writer. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a good, well-written book. It doesn't read like a business book. It reads more like a novel. Nice. And it has 18 steps parsed off into how do you plan, how do you build, and how do you implement a healthy culture and do a culture renovation. Love it. Uh, we do a lot of workshops around this stuff around the world. We're doing one in Abu Dhabi right now. Oh, that's great. Well, Jay, thank you for sitting in. This has been really valuable. And I'm certainly glad to do it again, Doug. I appreciate it. All right, sir. Well, folks, with that, I know we've run a little long today, but I, I, I think you'll agree with me. This has been really powerful and gives you some good insights for what you maybe should be thinking about. Grab that book. It sounds like an amazing one. I know that's what I'm going to do as soon as I get offline here. I'm going to punch the Amazon button to go grab that. But uh, with that, we're going to sign off, say goodbye, and wish you the very best. Go out there and make it a great day. Thank you, Doug. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.